Welcome to Retirementals, a podcast that dives headfirst into the issues facing the financial sector at the intersection of investment, technology and financial advice. Hosted by Abraham Oksanya, you can expect raw honesty, critical analysis and energetic interviews. Here is your host, Abraham Okasanya. Hello and welcome to Retirementals. It's great to have you all here today. Um, I am really excited about my guest today. Rory Percival needs no introduction to most listeners of this podcast, but I'll give him one anyway. He's a highly influential ex-regulator, speaker, consultant to financial advice firms. Is 10 years tinked, um, put him on the map, or did he put the FCA on the map? Um, it became very, very influential in the way that the FCA thought about and regulated advisors. His brainchild includes, uh, you know, terms such as capacity for loss and centralized investment proposition. Rory, welcome to Retirementals. Hi, Abraham. Very pleased to hear, be here. You're, you're responsible for introducing, you know, capacity for loss as a, as a terminology into the financial advisor lexicon. So can you, can you talk a little bit about, A, why this is now, um, you know, a, a mandatory requirement for, for advisors, uh, and B, how, how you think they should go about assessing it? I, um, you're, you're correct in that I, I was involved with bringing the terminology in, but I wasn't involved with bringing the rule in. The rule uh, stems from MIFID 1, which was back in 2007. Uh, so it sits within the heart of the suitability rule in COBS 9.2, which says, uh, in amongst other things, is that um, the recommendation should be such that the client is able to bear the level of risk um, associated with the um, with the solution recommended. So when we did the um, project on risk profiling um, and matching to investment solutions back in 2010, um, leading to the publication of finalised guidance 11.5 in 2011, we um, we looked at this and we came up with I don't think it was me we came up with the expression capacity for loss. Um, and it is defined by a little footnote in FG 11.5. And it's about the amount of uh, loss that the clients can sustain without having a material impact, and that word is important, material impact on their standard of living. I think, you know, you and others have been critical about the relevance of capacity for loss in, in the past. And I will, I will go to my grave defending the importance of capacity for loss as part of um, the rule book. The reason being is that the rules are there to try and stop advisors giving bad advice and putting clients in a really, really bad position. And capacity for loss is a real key issue where clients can be left in a really bad position. I'll give you two examples, <clears throat> one about permanent loss, and one about temporary loss. An advisor recommends all of the client's investments go into some dodgy unregulated investment. As is common with these things, it goes pop, and they've lost all their money, they've only got the state pension to live on, 
that's not enough for them to live well that has a material impact on their standard of living they are to all intents and purposes destitute they've lost their life savings that's not great financial planning you need a rule to say you can't do that and capacity for loss rule is the one that says that second example temporary loss an advisor recommends uh, client withdraws uh, five percent per annum let's say from their um, from their pensions and investments as you well know by being the master of the sustainable withdrawal rate five percent isn't sustainable all the chances are that five percent you know in adverse market conditions isn't sustainable so these clients uh, a few months later um, or a year or two later whenever the markets tank they carry on taking their five percent because that's what they were advised to do and they get to the stage you know you've got the double whammy of the investment markets going down and, and the five percent coming out because but of course because the values have gone down it's now much higher than five percent what's left and you get into a, a downward spiral which cannot be rectified at that level of withdrawal so at the annual review the advisor says look you know this is all gone a bit pear-shaped we can't sustain this we're going to have to reduce your income level to two and a half percent of the original amount or two percent or nor percent for a period until the markets come back again and those levels of income are sustainable client says well how long is that going to be and the advisor says i don't know it depends on the market could be two months it could be six months it could be 18 months it could be two years who knows so the client's sitting there thinking so maybe a year or two or three i can't have an income i can't go on holiday I can't go out, I can't afford to do all those things. That's had a material impact on their standard of living for a, you know, potentially a prolonged period. So that again is a, is a breach of capacity for loss. When we look at um, people who have been scammed in the press, um, we feel really, really upset about that and really, really annoyed that people have done that to other people. The reason we're annoyed is because people, you know, it's more like the first scenario where they've lost all of their uh, life savings. And, you know, people are in a really bad situation. You could also say, oh, well, capacity for loss is not necessary because that recommendation didn't meet their risk profile either, their attitude. That would be right. But the reason that we get upset and the reason that clients get upset is not because it didn't meet their risk profile. It's because it's breached their capacity for loss. It's had a material impact on their standard of living. So that's why capacity for loss is really, really key. Now you might think, well, those two advanced uh, um, uh, scenarios and advisors are ones where any good advisor wouldn't recommend putting all of their money in an unregulated investment. Any advisor wouldn't recommend doing a, any good advisor wouldn't recommend doing 5% withdrawals because that's not potentially not sustainable. You're quite right, but you need a rule to say you have to give good advice. And it's a rule breach to give bad advice and put people in the position where there's a real material chance of them um, being destitute or certainly having a material impact on their standard. No, I, I actually think that was um, a brilliant, brilliant, uh, you know, elucidation. Is that the right word of of, um, you know, the, this framework around capacity for loss? And, and one of the issues that I have said a lot about is, is that um the i i i think you, you've answered it in the sense that you know the 
the the way the capacity for lots framework um, is often interpreted is to think of every loss in the in the portfolio as permanent and and irrecoverable um you know and i can understand how that might apply to you know esoteric product but the reality is that as you you, you pointed ted out to um you know the 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 risk inherent in you know mainstream publicly um you know listed or, or, or globally diversified portfolio which i advocate many advisors um you know do is that the result is temporary right the, the losses are, are, are temporary but you are quite right uh, absolutely about you know the fact that the prop the, the this is to me in a, in a way this is um you know a problem with with terminology because the very you know essence of you know what i've been advocating and talking about in the industry is that we must um you know stress test the client's you know re re retirement um plan you know financial plan and that and again this goes to the crux of you know my my, my argument with you which is to say well if if we are about testing the client's ability to bear loss by its very definition you can't use you know this straight line projection to 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 measure it um you know if you are relying on, on the capital market to support the income but you insist that you can <laughs> i i I say you can. I my, don't get me wrong. My preferred approach is a stochastic approach. All I'm saying around using deterministic cash flow planning tools, etc., is that um, a the FCA don't say you can't use deterministic, um, but b if you are using deterministic because of that exact point, you can't use in isolation straight line assumptions and leave it at that because uh, that is negligent because you know that markets don't work like that. So if you are using determinist tools, then you, I use my terminology here, I qualify my terminology. Normally when I say must, I'm talking about a, a rule, okay? And when I say should, I'm talking about a guidance because that's how the FCA uses its terminology. But in this situation, I'm not, I'm incorrectly using the word must, uh, i.e. it's not a rule. You must do stress testing if you're doing deterministic tools. Um, and I use the word must in that situation because I do expert witness work and it would be the easiest thing in the world to um, pull apart a firm that is using a deterministic tool when it hasn't done any stress testing and it has gone uh, belly up because it would be negligent for them to have done that without stress testing in very obvious knowledge and demonstrable knowledge that the markets don't work that way. So you must do testing, stress testing if you use the This is brilliant that you're saying this, um, you know, <laughs> because strangely, I, I agree. Now, so, so what I'll put to you then is that the, the, the sustainable withdrawal framework you know, the, the, the very essence of the idea is that you should look at 
the you know historical absolute historical worst case scenario for a portfolio uh, including temporary or permanent but based on the underlying asset class within that portfolio uh, and stress testing the client's plan over the, the, the last hundred years, and bear in mind, you know, the data gets better and better because every, every you know, additional day, in fact, month, you know, is an additional scenario, um, you know, that, that we're testing. So, you know, the very essence is that stress test the client's plan and make sure that the plan works in the very, very bad scenario. Isn't that what, you know, isn't that one way? I know that there's a different, a second way which we'll talk about. The, isn't that one way of evidencing, um, you know, the, the client's capacity for loss? Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the fundamental problems that uh, a lot of firms and advisors do in the market historically, I hope it's better now, but I'm I'm not sure how much better it is. Is that advisory firms would be asking the client what their capacity for loss is. And I know mm. this is part of some of the uh, risk profiling tools have a separate session, section on asking the client about capacity for loss. You're guaranteed to get the wrong answer if you do that because the clients don't know it's a mathematical calculation it's, and they won't be able to divorce their emotional feelings around risk from the factual numbers based that capacity for loss is around. So it's, you never, ever, ever ask the client what the capacity for loss is. Uh, you should find out what their income needs are, and then you do the, the, the planning, the cash flow planning, the stress testing, and does their standard of living, are you able to maintain their standard of living in the event of you know, worst case scenarios? And it's that stress testing that is the testing against the capacity for loss. So capacity for loss is not doesn't happen at the interaction of the client and the advisor. So it's not a case of talking to the client about it. It's an analysis piece that happens behind the scene by the advisor or by the power planner who's ever putting that plan together. So, so we introduced, um, you know, a, a capacity for loss measure measuring timeline, and essentially the way we the way we basically approach this is to, you know, measure the proportion of the client's income that will be maintained in the worst case scenario for for the portfolio they're investing in. Um, you know, and then we benchmark that against the the Pulsar's retirement um, living standard to kind of estimate the the impact on their lifestyle. Now we we've we've shown that to you, and you've kind of suggested to us. Well, we you know we we have to you know uh, not just measure against the the, the Pulsar living standard, but measure against the client's own. Um, you know, uh, income needs and, and requirements, which which we're doing. But my, my sense is that, you know, vast majority of firms aren't in a place where they can measure this objectively, benchmark against, you know, well thought out industry standards, um, by that I mean the, the, the pulses um, and, I, I haven't seen yet, um, you know, a, a robust way that, that people do this, um, uh, you know, uh, in, in other tools. So my, my sense is that 
you're, you're right in saying that this is an area that needs, um, you know, a, a lot of thinking, a lot more, you know, improvement um, in the way that, that advisors approach this. But I don't expect that is going to change anytime soon. That's unfortunate. Yeah, because I think the point about this um, capacity for loss is some people get in the mindset that this is a an FCA concept that sits in isolation is there purely because the FCA are, are awkward and don't know anything about financial planning and all the rest of it. Again, I'll go to my grave arguing against that. A, that's wrong, and B, um, <laughs> you don't have to, this is the old thing about being a, you, you don't have to have done the job to understand how it works. It, you know, if, the number of times I've seen people in comments under the line in articles saying, oh, well, you haven't been a financial advisor for 20 years to know, <laughs> to know enough about this. Well, the people in, I've been in the sector for 34 years, um, not much of it as advisor, some of it, but I, I'm a charge of financial planner. I know how, <laughs> I know how financial planning works. And so do, a very large number of people at the FCA. That's just, it's just a complete nonsense. And going back to what I was saying about capacity for loss earlier and explaining why it's important from a planning perspective about not leaving people destitute, you tell me that that's a bad rule. You can't. Of course you need that rule in there. I, I agree. And, uh, and the other thing that's often, the other criticism that's often said about capacity for loss is that, and I think that you would agree with this, specifically in the paper, you know, the, the, the FCA sort of glosses over the impact of, or the likely impact of, of inflation in the framework, um, you know, because although you might say to a client, well, you're not going to be able to bear the loss that is, let, let's, let's put our, our, ourselves in, in a scenario two that you, you highlighted earlier on. So you say to a client, well, look, um, you know, you, you might not be able to bear the losses, or, you know, temporary or, or, or permanent that are associated with this portfolio. And therefore, you know, we, we reduce your income temporary and and again i should say that you know you know if you're using timeline you can demonstrate to the client what kind of reduction that's going to be and essence essentially agree that that with the clients and, and see the impact on their lifestyle but then let, let's say you, you you say to the client well you can't cope with the losses that are that are associated with this this portfolio let's um and therefore what don't invest um, you know, sitting cash, and, and many advisors are going to say, well, actually, that offers no improvement um, on, on the situation, um, yeah. you know, to, to the you, 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 you raise a very valid point there, Abraham, and the issue is um, not about what you do with that investment risk level. And one of the perhaps the misleading things about the capacity for loss being in the connection of risk is the solution isn't risk-based. The solution is financial planning based. Mm. So if you modeling a, a client situation with their objectives of having a certain level of income in retirement, uh, the pot size is whatever it is at the moment. Um, and you know, you're coming up with figures that just don't work, frankly. Let's say you've got a 
success rate of 60%, 70%, 80%, that's still a plan that's not you know, running too high a risk of breaching the client's capacity for loss. If you've got those kind of numbers, the solution isn't taking more risk. The solution isn't taking less risk. The solution is doing a different plan. The plan doesn't work. So you go back to financial planning to resolve that issue. Now that financial, the main levers are retiring later. What's it look like if they retire a year later or even six months later? What's it look like if they do some part-time work after retirement? If they were planning that anyway, what's it look like if they do it for a little bit longer or at a slightly higher rate? Um, what happens if they save more? What happens if they scale down their objectives, their income objectives, but still to be what is going to meet their standard of living? What happens if they die sooner? It's, those, it's all of those are planning levers. The solution is planning. Okay. No, I, I tend to agree. No, I tend to actually, I, I tend to agree with, with a lot of those because you don't want to, the, 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 the solution necessarily isn't to say, well, take more risk than, than you should and you can, um, you know, it's, it's coming up with moving all the other levers, um, you know, potentially that, that you can. Okay. So that's, that's clear. Now, the, I want to move on now to, um, you know, your views on retirement income specifically. You, and I think I can say that indeed the FCA generally subscribe to this idea that I call, I call it a safety first approach, which is to say, well, actually, you should only expose, um, you know, you shouldn't expose a client to, uh, a client's essential income to the capital market. So you should only expose, um, you know, to the to the capital market um, after you've after you've secured, um, you know, the, the essential income. And, and there are a number of problems with it. A, this one is that a you don't agree with with my characterization of of your your philosophy around this so i guess we should start from well what is your sort of broad guideline on um you know how you you approach re retirement income in this regard okay um you use different expressions in there so some of it mischaracterized it some of it didn't <laughs> so um and and ditto the fca um the fca don't take us a safety first approach as it is commonly um, uh, defined. What it does believe, I, I believe, uh, and I believe myself, is that security in retirement is very, very important. Okay. Now, I prefer to use secure rather than guaranteed. Um, not even preferred. I would always in this context use secured rather than guaranteed. Now, I think the misunderstanding perhaps arises about how you generate security in retirement. I would say that there are broadly three ways that, or scenarios where you could have security in retirement. The first one is your income sources are secure. So that's to say state, pension, uh, DB, annuity, guaranteed third way, et cetera. It's pretty much it. So those very, very secure, and in some cases guaranteed income sources. Now that's open. 
people, I don't know if you, you think this, but some people will think when the FCA are talking about securing income, they are talking about you have to use those secure income sources to give you security in retirement. That's wrong. That's just one of three ways, I would say. Okay. Um, second way is a lot of clients, and particularly clients of a lot of advisory firms, are pretty well off. Right. They, they have a lot of money and, um, you know, okay, they might have high income needs for their, uh, meet their standard of living, um, but maybe not astronomical. They are in a position where they're sufficiently well off that irrespective of what happens in the markets, they're always going to be fine. They're always going to meet their standard of living. Now, there's quite a lot of clients in that situation. Okay. The, the, the really well, the, we are talking fairly, really well off here. There's probably a, a, a third category that kind of sits in the middle, perhaps, which is um, people who do, you know, you do need to do some planning to ensure longevity of the pension pot and other assets pots to ensure uh, they have enough money to live on throughout retirement. But um, certainly the essential expenditure and depending on the client and um, potentially the um, the uh, lifestyle expenditure as well they sh you should ha aim to be more secure with that income source to cover those cover those income needs now if you're using a tool such as timeline which as you know i think is a very good tool i haven't done a <laughs> oh, thank you. I've done an under the under the bonnet analysis, but broadly, I'm knowing how it works. I think it's I think it's very good. If you're using a tool like that, what I would suggest is that um, where possible, you have either a proportion or, well, let's say a proportion of your assets that are you're having a withdrawal rate that you're pretty damn sure is sustainable under any circumstances. So I'm talking 99, 100% here, okay? Mm -hmm. so that will be a lower return rate, obviously, than a 90%, 95% security success rate or 90%. But what I'm saying is if, you, if, you, if you're at those very, very high probability percentages, then you, you've created that security there, a greater level of security there. If you can't do that, there's got to be a compromise somewhere. It's either, and the solution again is either planning, you know, retiring later, scaling down income or whatever, or potentially a, the client accepting a 95% rather than a 9900% figure. Now a word from our sponsor. Nikki Heaton Jones is the managing director and the chief investment officer at Betafolio, the high-tech, low-cost discretionary model portfolio manager why do you think that the investment industry as a whole make these things um un unnecessarily complicated i think it's become it's become self-fulfilling in a way um everyone it's the holy grail to find the investment approach that will can you know reliably beat the market and I think there's, we shouldn't ignore the element that it's been a great way for businesses to make money as well. Um, if you appear to be employing large teams of economists 
and strategists um, carrying out complex processes, then it's easier to justify a high fee for those services and to make a, a nice profit. Thank you very much, Nikki. We did an analysis of, of you know, frankly, thousands and thousands of plans built on timeline, and we found that something in the order of, um, you know, more than 50%, more than half of the plan was has a success rate of of 90% or more right and and uh, there's an additional 15% that has 80% or more which we considered um you know sustainable 90% we say highly sustainable but you you you're saying you know 90 plus percent but let, we'll come back to this what what fascinates me about this discussion is that you know clearly in, in our case, we we actually have advisors who've tested this. Now we can debate the level of you know the success you know the success rates and things like that. You know which tends to to tend we tend towards the very high, um, but but then there is you know a huge huge proportion of plans that are built on deterministic models that haven't tested this kind of scenarios. Maybe the advisors dropped losses every five years or, or in a way that is, in, in, that, that is incoherent and consistent with the, with the way the capital market works. You know, I, you know so, so I'm saying to you, well, if you're really gonna start there, if you're really gonna start um, you know, talking about this problem, well, maybe that's where we should start, no? You're not going to get me to say you can't use deterministic tools. <laughs> okay, well. But Walter, just, going back to what I was saying earlier, if you are using deterministic, as I said earlier, I, I, think, friend, it's I, think, I think stochastic tools are better, but I don't think uh, you can't use deterministic tools. The simplicity of deterministic tools can, can work well with some clients. Um, but if you are using deterministic tools, you must stress test them and you must do that in a in a, in a sense and robust way. Right. So so let me let me let me post a scenario to you. Um, you know, I, I think deterministic tools are fine, right? If you if 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 with a huge if, if you follow, you know, what I describe as the safety first um, you know, philosophy. In other words, Clients walk walk in. A, a client walks in, and you secure um, all, if not, uh, you know, as much as possible of their essential spending, um, and you know, to, to an extent, um, you know, lifestyle spending as well. You secure that, um, you know, with with you know, guaranteed sources of income. So let me give you a scenario. A client's working. Let's just assume, you know, she's single. Um, you know, she um, is in her 60s, right, approaching the, the, the state pension age and, you know, comes in, let's say, let's just keep it simple, um, you know, we, with, with a portfolio of, you know, £300,000, right? And, and after you've gone through the analysis of their income and their expenditure and all that stuff, right, I, I'm deliberately choosing a borderline scenario, um, you know, the, the client needs... Um, you know, 20,000, maybe 20,000 pounds in, in essential spending, 
you know, we know that half of that is going to come from, you know, state pension potentially. So you analyze that. And so then therefore they need about three, you know, they need about 15 grand, uh, um, thinking of this number yeah let's even say yeah they, they need about 15 grand um you know to meet their comfortable type of of lifestyle they need 20 for the essential 25 for for a decent lifestyle and anything over and above that is of course uh, of course is great let i'm keeping this deliberately simple now they have a home that is paid for or that was soon shortly be paid for you know, if a client walks into, into my office with that scenario, well, under the safety first approach, what you would do will be to say, well, you have 9,500, maybe 10,000 pounds worth of secured income. Let's go off and buy an annuity for, for, for 10,000 pounds. And Mrs. or Miss client, I hate to break it out to you, you will need to spend all of your pension port, um, you know, to, 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 to do that. I think if you're, you're following that framework of advice, I don't necessarily believe that it's the right approach. Um, but if you're following that framework, well, yeah, sure, use a de deterministic model. I, I think the problem comes if you come to a, a, a probability type framework, well, essentially I'm going to say, well, what's the worst case scenario that could happen, um, you know, in a balanced portfolio, you know, from, for, for a 200 and, sorry, for 250,000 portfolio, say 3%, um, you know, adjusted for inflation, all of that stuff, um, that's 15 grand added to the baseline, you know, state pension, you, you are actually going to be okay in the worst case scenario, but guess what? You have a lot of flexibility because vast majority of scenarios are going to be better than the worst case scenario. So that's the way I would approach uh, approach this. Now, you're saying there is maybe something in the middle, so we say secure 75% of the income, which is still going to cost a lot, a lot of their, um, of their pension fund. How would you approach that in the real world? Bear in mind, there's still... Um, you know, the, the property asset, that's not part of this conversation. Yeah. Right. There's a lot of points here. <laughs> the first point is one pound of secure income is worth more than one pound of unsecure income. So what I mean by that, let's, because it gives you peace of more peace of mind, and financial security than the unsecure income. So let's pick some random numbers. You would have thrown around 20,000 before. If a client has on the one hand, the option of 20,000 pounds of secure income, how much unsecure income would they accept before they would give up that 20,000 secure income if they were given the choice? No rational person would say, I'm happy having 20,000 pounds of unsecure income instead of 20,000 pounds of secure income. That's, that's not a rational decision to make. So some people might say, well, if you were to offer me 25,000 unsecure income, then I'll happily take that instead of the 20,000 secure. Others might say 30,000. Others might say, well, not at all. I need it to be secure. That will vary according to all sorts of things like uh, the client's views, but also what do you actually mean by unsecure and stuff like that. But philosophically, one pound of secure income is worth more 
than one pound of unsecured income. That's a really, really important thing. So people talk about annuities being bad value for money. I would say, well, that's because you're just looking at the pounds that you get. The pounds that you get are worth more than the pounds that you would get from an alternative unsecure approach. It's exactly the same conceptually as investing in the markets versus having a risk-free deposit. And okay, this is a few months out of date, but let's say you get 1% return <laughs> on deposit. You're not going to invest in the markets and having build, building in risk if your long-term return is only going to be 1%, are you? Then you've got to have a, a, an equity risk premium. It's the same conceptually conceptual point, okay? That is part of a bigger issue around, and I, and I, 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 I accuse you in this category, and you know I do because we've had this conversation before. Sure, nail me to the mask, go on. Do about, it. about the focus on, the overriding focus on maximum pounds. And a lot of financial planners and people in the, in the advice sector talk about how do you maximize the pounds for clients? It's not just about maximizing pounds, it's primarily about achieving clients' objectives. And part of that, a big part of that, is having financial security. I'll give you another example of how this pounds bit, advisors get this pounds bit wrong. It's all about the pounds. Uh, last week, I was um, doing some awards judging, okay, and there was a case study. And in the case study, the client had a um, uh, a holiday property. And most of the entrants would say something about the property, like put it in a discretionary trust, there was IHG planning going on here, sell it, um, because they're only using it, it's half a million pounds, and they're only using it four times a year, give it to the sun and then pay commercial rent, doing all uh, rented out holiday let and all the rest of it. But the ones that just said, oh, we'll just sell it, it's, you know, they're only getting four weeks worth out of that, it's not worth it. I just thought that's just wrong because that's just thinking about the pounds. There's no mention in the, in the advisor's response about asking the client what their views are about it and how they value that asset. And this is very, I know about this personally because I've been in the same situation. Up until a few months ago, my wife and I had a flat in Inverness, not half a million, it was only about 100,000. We bought it 10 years ago for £112,000 and we sold it um, back in November for £102,000. So we lost £10,000 on it over 10 years. Wow. And we yeah. didn't let it out during that whole period. Um, we would go every couple of months for a long weekend. We'd have a week or two over Christmas and a week here in May. And Financially, in terms of pounds, that was stupid. You're nodding, absolutely. It would have been much cheaper to have got Airbnb, hired a flat and all the rest of it. Would I do that again, taking us back to 2010? Absolutely. Best money, best money, best financial decision we've ever made. Because the value of that flat to us personally is having our own place, our own things there, our ability to turn up and be there in our own space was worth that. And sometimes financial planners and others in the sector here focus on the maximum pounds rather than the value of those pounds that it gives to people. 
this is actually quite powerful. I mean, I, I'm thinking in my head as you're talking, <laughs> maybe again, wrong, how you quantify the, the, the sort of the emotional, the, the, the emotional benefit, um, you know, of, of a secured income. Or, and of course you match that to um, unsecured income as you, I would say emotional benefit of a secured income, guaranteed income versus sustainable income um, in, in the narrow sense of the capital market. But I, I think it's very important. I mean, some of the stuff that we're doing with Timeline, which is to essentially ask the client in, in a fact find um, you know, tool, you know, something that they spend money on, we know what the essential is, but other things we can quantify, we, we can ask them, you know, whether this is kind of, you know, must have, like to have, dream to have, or dream of, and, and somehow weight that, some, you know, in, in terms of, you know, the, the, the emotional benefit of it is still, it's still miles off, but, but I think it's, it's a fascinating point. Look, let's, let's start to wrap this up. Um, you know, the, the, the other point I wanted to take you through, you know, I don't think we have enough time to do it, is um, essentially the FCA has just introduced its, you know, DBAT, is that what you will call it? Defined Benefit Advice Assessment, Assessments Tool. First of all, can, can you talk a little bit about this and what it's trying to, to do? And, you know, specifically around, you know, this prioritization of, um, you know, retirement income need that, that they brought into the framework. Yeah. Okay, um, DBAT, or however it's pronounced, um, I think all advisors should have a look at this and the, more particularly the guidance that goes with it. You look at the guidance, it's over 100 pages, you think, oh God. You start reading it and it's written by a lawyer. It's so obviously written by a lawyer. So, um, but there's some real gems in there. I think the best thing to do, if you can't cope with the 400 pages of lawyer speak, is to focus on the examples of unsuitability in there. And there are also right. uns examples of um, uh, you know, unacceptable disclosure as well, but let's just focus on the suitability bit. This doesn't just apply to uh, uh, defined benefit transfers. Those sort of are examples of unsuitability you, you can view much more widely about retirement income planning. So that's why I say all advisors stroke firms should look at this, not just uh, pension transfer firms um, especially. Um, so some key things in there but the overriding point that comes through this is that you need to look at what's in the client's best interests in terms of the retirement planning and there are must-haves which is retirement income and an income that's going to work for them and meet their objectives in retirement. There are nice to haves like flexibility, death benefits, etc. But you need to prioritize the must haves, the retirement income. The nice to haves only come along, you can only look at those if you've got the retirement income bit buttoned down. Okay. Now, what comes through from that? Coincidentally, I was reading an ombudsman decision this morning, and they were very, very in tune with the same concept which is the clients might express objectives around flexibility, death benefits, 
um, and the other things that drawdown give you. But to an extent, you, you as advisors need to put those aside because they are nice to have and prioritize the client's income. And I think from a planning perspective, and as somebody has, who is moving into retirement himself, this becomes very, very pertinent. You know, 35, 40 years of retirement and the need for my income sources to survive that period is mildly alarming. I'm, I'm confident <laughs> it, as it happens, but you know, it is, it is an, you know, you're too young to be worried about these things. But when you actually hit the point, it is, it is, a, it is a big deal. So advisors need to prioritize the income, the must-haves over the nice-to-haves. If you think that that's being paternalistic, it is. If you think that flies in the face of pension freedoms, you know, it's, it's the client's money, it's their choice. Yes, it does. But that's how the FCA rules work. This is fascinating and, and you bring us very, very nicely into kind of my wrap up questions, which is, you know, you're, you're, you're semi, is it fair to say you're semi retired now? I, I don't know that that terms, you know, but, but you're, you're winding down work. Um, and, you know, A, can you tell us, to tell our audience how you've um, sort of planned and structured your own retirement income and what, what you, you get up to these days? Um, how I structured my own retirement? Well, um, the first thing, of course, um, I went and saw a, a good financial planner. Um, I would like to say she is an extraordinarily good financial planner. Um, and she's plotted, you know, done the cash flow planning, done all the stress testing and all the planning out and such like um, to understand that, yes, we, you know, we are we are secure in our retirement. How that works out in practice is next couple of years, I'm still doing non-executive roles and some expert witness work and such like. So that'll be enough to live on for the next couple of years. After that, we'll have to start drawing income from different sources. And in, at some point, uh, my wife's got a couple of uh, a very good DB schemes, um, which will provide a very good core uh, level of income and core level of security in there. That's interesting. So you're leaving the guaranteed income till later and drawing the, you know, consultancy, of course, and then drawdowns, you know, and then the guaranteed income. Is that, we're is that we're like, my wife's not 55 yet or 57 if it changes or whatever. Um, so we won't be taking the DB scheme uh, now because you can't. Um, but it's a developing, you know, as people say, it's a developing process. So we haven't made the decision. The financial planner hasn't said categorically what we should do about the DP scheme. It could be that we take it from my wife's 55. It could be that it's a bit later. It probably will be a bit later because we've got my own income for the next for the next couple of years. Cool stuff. Very, very good. And and so what do you get up to other than reading Ombudsman? Uh, I mean, we're recording <laughs> this on Monday. Other than reading the Ombudsman stuff on Monday morning, yeah. what, what else do you, what um, do you get up to? Walking, traveling, uh, orienteering, uh, volunteering, uh, local history stuff, all the usual bits and bobs that people do in retirement. Yeah. Good. You, we're still going to be seeing you at, you know, one or two industry conferences a year when we get back to that. Yeah, I it'll take me quite a while to um, get to the stage where I'm not putting my nose in and commenting about stuff. <laughs> 
Rory you might Kessler. see the odd comment after articles or on Twitter for a little while yet. <laughs> cool stuff. Rory Pasvel, thanks for your time and for your wisdom and, and, and for your contribution to, to the profession. Thank you. Thank you. I'll be remiss if I don't thank my incredible team who worked very hard to put this program together, led by my producer, Hannah Dickinson. Thank you, thank you very much, guys. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Timeline App, the retirement planning software, and Bitfolio, the high-tech, low-cost, flat-fee model portfolio manager. And to you, our listeners, thank you for your time. I hope you've had as much fun listening to the program as we have making it. You can find more about the show at retirementals.co.uk and you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is Abraham on Money. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.